0: grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. On Luke, on Christmas Eve, we began reading Luke chapter 2, and today we finished that chapter, Luke 2. Last Saturday and Sunday on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, we read the middle portion of this same chapter. It is rare when the dates in the church year all line up to not only read the entire chapter, but to also do so in order. Anyway, in this, la- in this chapter, we heard of the events surrounding our Lord's birth. And from Matthew chapter 2, this past Friday at the Epiphany of our Lord, we heard of the visitation of the Magi to the young child in Bethlehem. Once Joseph learns that Herod wants to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, the holy family then flees to Egypt to take asylum there while King Herod seethes his bitter anger over the potential competition from a toddler who is called a king. Within a few years, King Herod dies, and so the family desires to move back into the promised land, but because Someone in the family is still reigning. They go back to Nazareth in Galilee, which is where their journey began before Jesus was born. And now as we hear in this gospel, Jesus grows in wisdom and stature. We don't have any information from that time in which Jesus is a toddler until he begins his public ministry, except for this little interruption in Luke chapter 2, in which we hear of Jesus when he is but 12 years old. We hear also that the family fulfills God's will in going to Jerusalem annually for the Passover feast. Now, we might not think a whole lot about the fact that Jesus went to the Passover every year, but just think for a moment what that would mean for the young Jesus. To understand this, we need to back up a little bit and think about the Passover account and how it was instituted and, and what it means. The Passover was instituted when God released his people from the bondage that they faced in Egypt. Remember, the Israelites had traveled down to Egypt under, under Jacob and Joseph, and they had lived there for about 400 years, and they became great in number, but the Pharaoh, who had forgotten about why they were there in the first place, made them into slaves. And so God raised up Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land, but the Pharaoh did not want to do this. The Pharaoh recognized how valuable of a workforce that they are. And so Pharaoh was even, even was willing to endure nine plagues so that, to, in order to keep the Israelites. But then finally, when God sent the 10th plague, which is the beginning of the Passover, then Pharaoh finally let his people go. That is when God sent an angel to kill the firstborn in every household in Egypt. But the Israelites were spared of this slaughtering, this death, because they were instructed to kill a lamb in the place of the firstborn and spread the blood of that lamb on their doorposts so that the angel would then pass over their home and not bring death to their family. So the lamb was a sacrificial lamb. They were also instructed to roast this lamb and to eat it. They were instructed to do this all in haste and to be ready with their belts fastened, staffs in their hands, and sandals on their feet, so that they are ready to flee at moment's notice. When Egypt begins to wake up that day, there was a great cry throughout the land, for even the Pharaoh's firstborn was dead. Therefore, the Pharaoh let the Hebrew people go, and eventually the people of Israel, they make it into the land that God had promised them, their own land to dwell in in freedom, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Annually, the Israelites observed the Passover. They continued to kill these lambs and to eat them, draining their blood. And this feast not only reminded them of the great mercy that God had on the people by releasing them from their slavery in Egypt, but it also taught them two additional realities. The first one is that God was forgiving them of their sin. That God was continuing to be merciful upon them by releasing them of their bondage to sin just as they had been released of their bondage to the Israelites. And that through the forgiveness of sins, God is leading them to the promised land of heaven just as God had led them into the promised land of Israel. And second and the most important aspect of the annual Passover feast is that it pointed God's people ahead to the coming Messiah who would serve as the Passover lamb that God's promised Son would come into the world, that he would take the blame for committing all our sin, that he would bear our many sins in his body and be saken by his Father in heaven as he sheds his innocent blood on our behalf on the cross to atone for our countless sins. Now, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for this Passover feast, he would have witnessed the countless animals that were being sacrificed by all these Israelites who had traveled into Jerusalem for this feast. And he knew that these sacrifices prefigured the very sacrifice that he himself would make for all people on the cross. He could see firsthand the harsh nature of death through these sacrificial animals, and as a result, the seriousness and how enormous The burden of sin truly is. The death that Jesus would endure for the sin of the world was far harsher, though, than the death that he had witnessed of these sacrificial lambs. Because Jesus would be bearing the sins of the world upon him, he would be expected to maintain his perfection, to fulfill the law in all of its points so that he could redeem the world of its sin and he, by bearing the sin of the world in his body, was forsaken by his Father in heaven, held accountable for what the world has done amiss. If you knew that your future involved a death like this, would you want to go to the Passover feast and witness all those lambs led to the slaughter? And yet, here is Jesus, the Passover lamb, arriving in Jerusalem for the very feast that directed his people to his upcoming death to atone for their sin. And then, shockingly, he doesn't leave as soon as he could. By the time he's 12, he knows the routine. He's been doing it every year. He knows the route to Jerusalem. He knows the way back home to Nazareth. He knows what to do when he's there. He knows how long to stay in Jerusalem. And his parents do not need to watch over his every moment. His parents, of course, are accustomed to his perfect behavior. Mary and Joseph don't have to yell at him all the time over and over to do this or that or to constantly remind him that which is truly good and right. So after the feast has been celebrated, Mary and Joseph begin their journey back to Nazareth with familiar company, assuming that Jesus is right along there with them. He did, after all, know the way. But as they were traveling that first day and kind of noticing that Jesus wasn't with them, they begin to search among their relatives and acquaintances, and they're unable to find him. They're left with no choice after searching through that crowd, that company that is traveling together, than to return back to Jerusalem to see if maybe they could find him there. And finally, after three days, they find him in the temple. There he is, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard Jesus are amazed At his understanding and at his answers. Mary and Joseph were unsurprisingly overwhelmed with great distress over the disappearance of their son. It's hard enough if a child should go missing for a couple of hours, let alone several days. When they find Jesus, they try to rebuke Jesus as if he had done wrong. They basically said, how could you do this? Look what you have put us through. Not recognizing how selfish those words were. They were making this about themselves, which is something that parents easily do. For it is easy not to for it, it, for, for it is easy to not always see the self-sacrificing nature of parenthood. But Jesus gently reminds them of his true father and that he must be about his father's things. Their role is to raise him to fulfill God the Father's will, and of course he cannot stay under their roof forever. This is a reality for all parents to also learn. The children that we have are gifts from God. God has entrusted them to our care and to our upbringing. And like Jesus, all children must also be about their father's business. Mary and Joseph, despite their weaknesses and failings and The selfishness that we saw exhibited here did serve in this capacity rather well. For they fulfilled the ceremonial laws that God had required of those who were living in the Old Testament era by bringing their child to his heavenly father. They brought Jesus to be circumcised on the eighth day. They fulfilled Mary's purification. They fulfilled the consecration of their firstborn. They honored the Sabbath rest each Saturday. They observed the pilgrimage feasts such as the Passover. They went through great lengths to raise Jesus right, leaving all behind as they first traveled to Bethlehem by listening to the laws of the state, and then fleeing to Egypt to avoid the state when they needed to seek asylum, and they raised Jesus in the faith. Now you may say, well, of course they would, because they're raising the very Son of God. But ask yourself, should they do anything less if they weren't raising the Son of God? What if they just had normal children, none being the Messiah? Is there any justification to skip out on this godly feast or on that Christian observance? Is there any good reason at all to place other things like sleep or sports or scouts or school before involvement in the church? Now, my parents did not know that they were raising a boy who would become pastor. They did what they thought was right for raising me. No one in our extended family has gone into church work. I'm sure if they knew my future, they would have chosen to do some things differently, perhaps involving me even more in doctrinally pure religious activities and studies. All children need this. So what about the children in our congregation? What plan does God have for our little ones? Could some grow up to become pastors or church workers? God, of course, knows the plan that he has for them. We certainly want to raise them so that they would become productive members of society and even more so who will start families and raise their children To be devout Christian. For them to do so, they need parents to serve as the best examples in their lives for Christian living. We should raise our children so that they will have a keen interest in the doctrine of Christ. And this only comes about as parents serve as examples for our children, talking of the things of God to our children and joyfully involving them in the activities of the church. They should see from us parents that our status as baptized, as adopted children of God, is of utmost importance to us. They should see from us that there is nothing in this life that has greater worth or greater value than, than to be with our brother Jesus through his word and through the forgiveness of sins that he offers to all who call upon him. We all love our children. We all want to do what is good for them. We work at ensuring that they are schooled and that they're ready for a trade or a job. We want them to make it in this increasingly difficult real world. We teach them to love the things we love. We impart to them many skills and much knowledge. What children need to survive in this fallen world, to be confident of who they are in our age of confused identities, and to have hope of things unseen, is that our children not only need to be raised in love, but that they also need to be raised in Christ. That is, what they need above all things for us parents is to love our children in Christ. The same goes for grandparents, that they would love their grandchildren in Christ. It is much easier to love our children or grandchildren to the point that we will spoil them, give them everything they want, or help them to keep up with the Joneses so that they do not feel left out among their peers. But these ways are far from loving our children in Christ. To love our children in Christ is to follow that example that is set forth by Mary and Joseph who listened to the word, who followed the word, who fulfilled the word of God, who marveled at this word, who pondered this word in their hearts. They did everything to ensure that Jesus was following what God required of him. And to love our children in Christ means that we will ensure to love our children, in the same way. That they will be baptized into Christ. That they will be raised in the baptismal faith. That they will be brought into the Lord's house to be with Jesus, our brother, on each Lord's day. That they will be taught this word of God joyfully at home. That they will be taught to pray at home, that they will be taught to always place Christ first in their lives. Our children are dying to receive this confidence and stability from Christ amid this unstable, sinful, and chaotic world. At the beginning of this new year, it is good to consider how you can improve the ways that you are loving the children in your lives in Christ whether they are your children or grandchildren or godchildren or or other children how can you improve the ways that you are setting their savior Jesus before their eyes how can you better raise them so that they will withstand the assaults of the evil one and receive the goal of their faith, the salvation of their bodies and souls. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, nothing is more important for them. We like to assume that everyone's just going to heaven, and we can put all this Christian stuff off on the back burner. But that is a lie that Satan would have us believe. We must instead be on guard at all times. And teach our children as if this day will be their last. For we do not know the future. We all need Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and who now lives. Because in him we have eternal life. And the gates of heaven are opened to us. So let's make sure that our children are never lost, but are always found in the Lord's house, our Father's home. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.